Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how have their mentors' mistakes and motivations led them to achieve the things they have? Our last episode with Shireen Kassam has been a great hit. She is so brilliant, and thanks as ever to those of you who've been in touch. I've also guested on two other podcasts in the last fortnight, talking about my veterinary career and about this podcast. So if you're interested, I will stick the links on the show page. Apologies that there was no episode last week, guys. I have just been absolutely pummeled at work over the last couple of weeks. And the honest truth is that I just ran out of time. I didn't want to give you all something pretty crap to listen to. So I figured it was best to save it up and give you a double whammy of wonderfulness today because you are in for a treat, my friends, albeit one with a bit of swearing and a hint of explicitness, so do be warned. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a reasonably open-minded person, and you may be happy to discuss pretty much anything in the course of day-to-day life. In this spirit, I watched the most talked-about documentary of the year so far this week, Laura Dodsworth's 100 Vaginas a film made during her quest to photograph 100 women's vulvas for an art project. It's certainly an explicit film. It's on Channel 4 if you want to catch up. And there are plenty of well-told stories of sexual pleasure and orgasm. But the subjects also openly discuss childbirth, cancer, miscarriage, gender reassignment, FGM, and much, much more that their vaginas and vulvas have experienced during the course of their lives. It is touching, it's empowering, and it's sensitively made. And it should be required viewing for school biology classes immediately, in my opinion. In reality, the stigma surrounding discussion of female genitalia and menstruation means that most people won't even say period in public, let alone discuss the ins and outs of a woman's monthly cycle. The word powerhouse is much overused these days, but in the context of periods, at the very least, it is most certainly applicable to this week's guest, Gabby Edlin. She is a tour de force in the fight against period poverty as founder and CEO of Bloody Good Period, an enterprise that provides sanitary products for asylum seekers in the UK and campaigns to change the conversation around women's health, in particular menstruation. Gabby has featured in Vogue, yes, Vogue, as well as a host of other brilliant publications, and her work has rightly garnered her the attention it deserves worldwide. Gabby's career is really interesting, and I can't wait to share our conversation with you, because if we're talking about smashing open a door when only a chink of light is showing, then she is the boss. Brought up in Manchester in a Jewish family, Gabby's passion for social justice and women's issues began early. In the interests of full disclosure, I should probably say that Gabby and I went to school together. I'm a couple of years older than her, and she is much more creative than me. But we were both inspired by our favourite English teacher and share a deep love of our home city. So without further ado, let's get into it. Awesome. Well, thanks ever so much for joining me, Gabby. I'm so pleased to chat to you today. Um, Do you want to just give me a little overview about what were you like when you were a kid and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? So um, I was always a very, very creative child, always drawing um, and quite introverted, actually. 
um, which is quite different to how I am now, I think. Um, and I stand on stage and talk about periods. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wanted to be a fashion designer from the age of about six or seven, I think, when I sort of realised what clothes were and was really, really passionately interested in it, was designing my own lines and I've still got all of my old designs. Um, and that was until I was about um, 17 and something in me just just um, just switched. Um, I think it might have been to do with school. It just it didn't seem like a viable option anymore. I decided to be a photographer and pursued that for a couple of years um and then didn't know basically but 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 the the majority of my like childhood and teenage years I was 100% I was going to be a fashion designer that that was what I wanted to do aiming high because obviously a career that is uh you know difficult classically kind of difficult to get into you know we talk about careers that are kind of difficult to get into fashion design is definitely one that falls into that category and and interesting you said you had a change of mind to do with school we were just chatting before we started this about school and and feeling that you have to go into a traditional career did you did you feel that pressure as a teenager that you should do something that was going to make you a quote-unquote success, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was told in no uncertain terms it wasn't um, it, it wasn't the right career for the school that I went to or that we went to. Um, yeah, I was I was told. I remember I vividly remember sitting in in the careers office and being told that's that's really not a suitable career. Um, and I don't think that was what um, I don't think that was what changed my mind at all because I still continued to do it but I think I just I started to become more uh, like socially aware in terms of like issues you know like political issues and just started thinking you know it would just be very one-dimensional um but Mm -hmm. you know I also I think I just lost a little bit of interest in fashion very very interested in fashion when I was younger and I think I just lost a little bit of interest in it and um it just it, it I think I sort of just grew out of it as well it was always um the thing that I could identify with that's what I do because I like clothes I like fashion I like drawing mm. uh but yeah no I mean I think part of it was school I think that was probably without realizing that was probably you know quite manipulated me into thinking like that's not the right thing to do which is really sad. You it know. is really sad. And it's also a real emphasis that, you know, young women's attitudes and, and how they feel about themselves and their ambitions are just formed at such an, at an, such an early age. And that influences from people in positions of power during your teenage years are so vital, aren't they? Because actually, if somebody had sat you down and said, Gabby, you'd be the most amazing fashion designer, you know, let's sort you out a placement at wherever you know then you might have been on quite a different career track I guess I think so yeah I mean my parents were very encouraging um that they were always um very much like you find the thing that you want to do and you you work at it and and I think that you know I think that's what they thought I would do but yeah it was I felt sort of almost no support from the teachers in terms of doing something that wasn't doctor lawyer you know, and and as I was the only person in my year who went on to study art, um, and it was sort of, it was really sort of fine artist or nothing. Um, mm. I think that was that was how it felt at the time. You know, and you said about um, a kind of growing social and political interest. Did that carry on as you went to uni? Did you kind of extend that through things that you did at university as well when you were studying art? 
It did. I did. I was in a youth movement, a Jewish youth movement from when I was about 14, um, which was very like socially and politically active. And so I was doing that the whole time. And I think that was what was sort of changing me a little bit and, and making me more of like a questioner, I think. So that was sort of during school as well. But um, yeah, as I went to, I did a gap year and uh, taught English um, in Arab schools in villages in Israel and just started to become really, you know, just much more like there's, there's things that I want to do. But still, you know, I think I was quite keen on being a photographer then, still really interested in like photography. At uni, it wasn't so political in the way that it is now so I was there in the early noughties mid noughties I did a little bit of stuff like with feminist society and like the environmental society but it wasn't there just wasn't the push there and I don't think it from myself either like I think I just didn't really know what I cared about I just knew I was you know I just knew I was a bit of an angry you (laughs) it's funny isn't it what you say about universities becoming more political because I think it's almost come around in a circle because I can remember my mum always tells me about going on like CND marches when she was at uni and like anti-war protests and all this kind of thing and now it feels like students are very politically active again whereas when you and I were at uni in the noughties I sort of feel like we were all a bit, apath- I, mean, I was just going out and getting drunk and having fun. Same. It was really apathetic. I mean, I remember boycotting my friend's Playboy party. I remember doing that, turning up in a tracksuit. <laughs> we had a Playboy party where, you know, it was girls as bunnies and men as humans. And I was like, this is disgusting. And yeah, wore, wore a tracksuit. But um, apart from that, I mean, I think there wasn't really anything to hold it social media wasn't really apart from Facebook it wasn't really a thing at uni you actually just got to know people by talking to them um which I mean in one way is obviously much better but in another way like there isn't that it is it feels impossible to find communities that aren't the people that you're with every day um and so yeah so I think it it didn't really start changing until I went into work actually so speaking of work what did you start off doing when you were in your early 20s how did you how did your career kind of shape from leaving university so um I should probably tell you what I did at university because that was a bit of a a faff as well (laughs) but I'll tell you a little bit more about me and like what my kind of decision-making processes. So I went on this year out and then um, came back to do foundation art in Leeds. Um, Great city. Yeah, I really, I really, I really love the course um, and I love the city, but everybody from Manchester, which is obviously where I'm from, was there. And I just found it quite stifling and decided that I wanted to be somewhere brand new out of everywhere and so went uh, was doing specialised in visual communications and photography on the course and then applied to do photography at Northumbria in Newcastle um, which I did for a year and was immediately taken back to my to, to my surprise I really missed being academic it was a very like technical course. It was very much how to take a photo and then, you know, lots of really sort of creative thinking, but no actual like academic work really. Okay. Um, and I was bored, basically. I was really, really bored um, and decided to switch course and university um, and ended up going to Newcastle to do 
English Lit, History of Art and Fine Art, which was the best decision I ever made, I think, because it was um it it was it was really challenging, but it was, you know, I had freedom to I was doing art as well, so I could draw, I could sew, I was doing all sorts of things and I was writing as well. Um so that was that was like a that was the best move. It's brave de- that's a brave decision, Gabby, actually, because there's quite a lot of pressure at that age to stick with what you're doing you know and actually having the I was going to say audacity maybe that's not the right word to to kind of quit out of something that you're not happy with and actually to take the step and say this isn't right for me and I'm not happy here I want to move to do something else actually when you're would you be 20 at that stage is quite a big decision I mean yeah it was huge and actually the the it was it was funny because I'd always wanted to do English and art when I was at school that was what I'd wanted to go to do at uni and was sort of told again no in certain terms you're not going to get the grades so don't bother um just do photography or you know do do foundation art so that was like something that I always was I'd held within me for those three years where I was like I just I really want to do English I loved English lit at school absolutely loved it god miss green best teacher ever god yeah (laughs) her passion for literature was was amazing and I really wanted to do that and because I was just t- told not to and just didn't and I think just gave up a little bit and then got to 20 and was like no do you know what like this I know I can do this and basically I didn't get the grades because I'd sort of been told there's no point you don't need to get the grades anyway for art so forced my way into Newcastle Uni by writing essays and getting references and like honestly just did everything I could to get in like because like, because I'd done well in in the photography the year before like I had done well and that was partly why I was so bored because it didn't feel like it was hard to do well in um and so I had that and I'd sort of written essays on foundation as well and so just used all of that and just I mean that was probably the biggest achievement of my life that I just I got into this course um without you know three A's and um you know at the time it felt like a bit of a stupid decision because all my friends were Based, all my school friends were, were about to leave uni and go into work and I was about to start first year again um which when you're I think I was 21 you feel so old you know so much more grown up than 18 year olds um but yeah but it was it was brilliant and I'm so glad I did it well actually good on you and and to to do that you know to force your way in like you say just by sheer tenacity is just brilliant you know <laughs> because yeah. it sort of shows that it can be done if you put your mind to it yeah and I do think that about a lot of things in life that if you push that door when it's open a crack you can definitely force your way in you know? yeah and it's also very much about asking what is it that will get me in you know it wasn't I, I sort of read the I read the description and I thought I don't have these grades so I called or emailed I can't remember what I did I called the course leader and said look this is my situation I know I can do it what is it that you need um and just asking you know like not being afraid to just because she could have said no and she still might they still might have said no you know but I had to try I had to I had to see just to reiterate here Gabby did a gap year then a one-year fine art foundation course, then a year of photography. Then she got herself into a degree requiring three A grades at A level that she didn't have by sheer force of will. It's like the equivalent of getting a moderate grade on the SATs if you're in the US, then talking yourself into Columbia or NYU. 
I said in the introduction that this woman was a powerhouse. And this is just one of the many examples where Gabby has gone on to prove that if you don't ask, you don't get. Unsurprisingly, she smashed the degree she had worked so hard to get into. So I asked her, what happened next? And then I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Absolutely no idea. Um, And I went to the careers uh, service at uni um, and discovered that you could be an arts educator. And honestly, to this day, I don't know why I decided to do that. I mean, I know why, because I was into informal education and, and, you know, was really interested in working with, really loved working with children. But it was one of the hardest jobs to get into. Museums and galleries are so competitive. Um, so, so competitive. So again, I sort of, I like moved to London, um, made, made lots of lists, was very sort of like tactical about how I did it all and wrote to all these galleries, sent them all like all these CVs and cover letters and everything just like speculatively, um, got a job in a a jewelry shop. And so, I mean, I was, there was, when I first moved to London, I was working in about five different places each week. Crikey. I was going to say, how were you supporting yourself at that time? So I taught art in a primary school um, mm-hmm. as a freelancer. I worked in a jewellery shop. Um, and then I had a bit of support from my parents. Um, but that was only for the first couple of months. And that and that was it, basically. And then I had an internship in an art gallery. Um, complete, I was completely skint. But I was really enjoying it. I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, And basically spent a few years just working in arts education, basically. Eventually went full time at this art gallery, um, was the learning coordinator. So what does that actually entail, Gabby? You're you're basically teaching children about art or facilitating children to come and learn about art. Is that right? Yeah, so children will come into the gallery um and so it's actually a really small part of it would be actually interacting with the children taking them around but it would be um like creating learning resources designing um sort of packs for schools about various artists and and art and exhibitions um and then um a little bit of like outreach so we'd go into schools into community groups and and teach art as well um and I really enjoyed like that that side of it, and actually through the designing of the resources as well, taught myself um, to be a designer. So spent like a few years really just sort of teaching myself in design and Photoshop, and um, just sort of discovering a new way of of being creative. Um, but it just it got to the point where I knew that I wasn't going to get much further without a master's degree I mean that's the way it is in in galleries and museums um and was finding it's so incredibly competitive for actually not particularly challenging roles um I've been I I don't mean this to come across as arrogant at all but it probably will sound it so what can I do um I'd been like working with kids since I was 14 and so and had lots of responsibility and had been like in charge of a residential camp of 80 children when I was 20 just because that's that's the way we worked in youth movements and so I was I was a bit bored you know and I felt like that was obviously that's obviously an unusual situation so people aren't necessarily used to that to that and and don't can't you know you have to work your way up but I was really frustrated and bored 
it's hugely about who you know and I didn't really know that many people to be perfectly Mm -hmm. honest and also coming from Manchester um (laughs) coming from the north people are like what the north I was honestly (laughs) shocked I was honestly shocked that's awful it was it was just bizarre the the sort of judgments I mean I'd never experienced it before (laughs) I was like I'm just I'm, I'm literally the same person as you like <laughs> I just live a few miles north but there was honestly there was I mean I don't think that had any real impact on my career but it definitely it wasn't great for my confidence you know it does make you resentful of, of a world where you're sort of seen as as quite different that's quite a London thing there isn't it I think you know you and I are from Manchester we love the north we know the city we know the people are brilliant and yet you come down and have and I've lived in the south for a long time now and people are they just sort of sniff a bit and they're like oh well you know it's a bit grim up north isn't it I know. Think, oh, I was, no, fuck off I was so <laughs> surprised I was honestly like you know it's it's literally like London it's just it's just a bit smaller and co- was, and cooler and people are and nicer and, yeah let's be honest um but basically it was around the time that I realized I had to do a master's if I was going to get anywhere um, and started looking at sort of arts education masters and my heart just wasn't in it there was this feeling that I was just like this isn't right this isn't for me and I discovered a master's at St Martin's when I was I was looking for arts education I vividly remember typing in you know something like creative industries masters and because I'm constantly battling with do I go into advertising I really like the idea of just producing ideas constantly I just, I just felt like I just can't do it. I just don't care about other people's products. Like I don't, I don't care about selling stuff. I just don't want to do that. Um, and so, so I was typing in, I looked at this thing that was creative industries and I came across this master's called Applied Imagination in the Creative Industries. And the tagline was asking better questions. And I was just like, oh God, this is for me. It was just, it was like a light bulb moment. and. For the next six months, I did everything I could to get in because um, it was um, it was just it was an application. You just had to write a letter. But I have never worked so hard on a letter in my entire life. Uh, honestly, um, I went in and I just did classic meeting by that point, which was I went in. And I was like, can I meet can I meet the course leader? Went and chatted to him was like, this is 100 percent the course for me um and got in which was I I was delighted about but Mm -hmm. then the matter of the fees was obviously something that I had to start thinking about yes because I was going to say actually when you said that your heart wasn't in a master's before a master's is a big undertaking if you're gonna if you've been working and then you have to not only give up your income that you've already had but also find the course fees and something to live on for a year in London that's a big it's a big deal isn't it you know there's no two ways about it it is a big deal it was yeah I mean but I I mean at that point there was sort of in order to move on in in galleries there was nothing else I could no, do sure, sure, I, sure. Had, I had to do a math everybody had a master's I was the only person there who didn't have one um but um it then moved into something actually I need to do a master's because I need to get out of galleries and museums and I didn't know what else to do and, and around this time I was doing a lot of like talking to different people and this around this time, so this must have been like 2013, 14, I started to become 
you know, started to re-engage with my feminism like I had at school and started to, you know, it was when it was all coming up again, like within, it was a very much like it was in London. It was people were doing stuff. People were talking about stuff. Um, and I just felt there was just a different path for me than talking to children about art, most of them who didn't really care at all. Um, and so, um, basically this masters that I applied for, you had to come in with a problem. Mine was, I want to engage people, do stuff about body image. So I basically created, uh, it's like an infographic that said, look, these are the things I want to do. I, I know, God, it was, I can't believe I actually had the chance to do this. It's not even that long ago, but it's basically like, look, these are the things I know that I can make a difference in the world. I know that I'm a creative person and I know that I can change things, but I haven't got any money. Like it's so low paid gallery, like working gallery, so low paid. Um, I couldn't ask my parents for it. Um, and basically the only other option was a loan, but I thought, look, what if I try? So I basically crowdfunded for, for my master's. Wow, right. Yeah. Well, I should say I started crowdfunding and I sold bits of art that I'd made and I did some special pieces. So it wasn't like I wasn't asking for donations, like I was selling work. It was just yeah. structured. And then the masters, the course leader saw it um, and said to me, you know, there's a scholarship available. And I was I didn't think I'd be eligible for it. But then I got it. And I just got a letter one day about six months before the course was about to start saying you've been given the vice chancellor's scholarship for academic something. Um, we're looking forward to you starting. And I just that, that was the that that still is it was the best moment of my life. I don't care if I have children get married. <laughs> that I will never I will never forget that moment of opening that letter because I, I had no I, I I just I had thought there was absolutely no chance there was quite, I thought there was quite a big chance at the time that I was gonna have to not do the masters or that yeah. I was gonna have a huge loan and I really didn't want more loans after uni because I was still paying off my student loan for you know for my degrees <laughs> um so but yeah so that 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 was the thing that changed everything basically that's amazing and so you've you obviously went through through that master's degree which sounds incredible um yeah I did that for two years and that was two years uh, full-time no it was part-time so I still worked so I still had to support myself and pay rent so I worked four days a week um and and did the master's around it yeah cool and then so we should probably move on to talking about bloody good period as well because we've been chatting for yonks and it's brilliant you're exactly the kind of person I just love to talk to and it's one of the things that I just so enjoy about doing this because it's so brilliant to talk to really brilliant people um anyway um so you were toddling along finishing your master's working away how did you, or what, what was the background to the idea of Bloody Good Period and how did that come about? I know you've told this story a million times before, but just give us an overview of how that, how that happened. So in the Masters, just really quickly, what I ended up doing was creating this sort of theory that the best way to engage men in feminism, so I'd moved on from body image, the best way to engage men in feminism was through comedy. And so worked with some men to make um, a sitcom, and that was sort of the project. Um, 
and that was that sort of stuck with me that idea that you use humor to just to just get stuff done and to make to make changes mm-hmm. um and then I finished my master's I got a distinction it was you know again just it was brilliant and I really started to feel like I was achieving stuff which I really I'd always felt quite middling before um and then I went back to work I was working in at the Royal Drawing School as a, as the um, under 18s art coordinator and was again bored out of my mind and was applying for promotions, wasn't getting anywhere, was feeling just really uninspired. And, you know, to her credit, I had the most wonderful manager who really pushed, you know, really tried to push like the the people above to let me do different things, to employ me in different departments. Um, and, you know, to absolutely no avail. That was, you know, that that was incredibly disheartening. And so I just started to do these projects of my own, um, in my own in my own time. Um, I was making cards. I had like a card company from quite a few years before. I did it was called Florence and Pearl and did offensive greetings cards. Anti Valentine's I mostly did. Um and like all this these different things and then like I did stuff about like refugees and it was called like love our neighbors and it was around Brexit and it was about like leaving notes in your neighbors post boxes. Cause I lived in a, a block of flats that was, I think we were the only English people there. And after Brexit, the mood was just, it was horrific. People were just so hurt and upset, obviously, as everyone knows. Um, so I did this thing about like leaving notes in your, in your neighbor's mailboxes being like, you know, everybody's welcome here. And it was, yeah, and all these things, like it was all these little things. It never really turned into anything. And then one day, um, I was a nanny at this point as well. So I'd been nannying part-time for about a year. And the dad of the nanny kids said, I'm setting up this asylum seeker drop-in. Will you come and help? And I was like, yeah, of course, of course I will. Um, and that was when I got the email through with all of the things that they were collecting all the essentials and there were no there was nothing for women there was nothing no period supplies no like just it just it was just seemed to be placing the man at the center and so I asked about period supplies and was you know the the response was is the thing that I've talked about loads of times it wasn't they didn't say no they said like oh it's well, we do it in an emergency. We have a few spare packs. And I just thought that that isn't how periods work. But it was women. It was it was older women who obviously meant well. Like there was, you know, they're, they're radical people who were setting up asylum seeker drop-in centres. But still there was just this huge gap like in, in thinking about like menstruation basically. And I was like, well, if these people are on such low funds I mean they get 37 pounds a week to live on and they're not allowed to work asylum seekers so it is incredibly tough like what are they doing for their periods like if they can't afford clothes if they can't afford food like there is not a chance they're buying pads and actually like the idea of of it being that they can come up and ask you people won't do that people are proud and people are also embarrassed I was going to say there's still quite a lot of shame around menstruation isn't there? huge amount wherever you're from it's not it's not you know people just often 
and try and place it on like, oh, the women from different cultures. Like, no, it is us. And actually, to be fair, if I was in that situation, I would feel embarrassed about marching up to somebody and saying, I've just got my period and do you have any pads, please? Exactly, exactly. And you wouldn't do it every single month. You wouldn't be able to ask for a pack. Anyway, so that was how it got started. I just put a status on Facebook. So I replied and said, I'll sort this out. Um, Put a status on Facebook saying, I've just made this Amazon wish list. Can you just buy stuff off it? It's going to come to me. Or go, well, I'll take it all to the Asylum Seeker drop-in centre. And that, it just exploded. Like it was, it just, there was people who I just hadn't, uh, people who I hadn't met, people who I didn't know who started sending stuff. And I think it was very much to do with um, people were so, no one knew what to do. It was just, it was after Brexit and everybody was angry and sad and no, there was nowhere really to put that. Um, And I wasn't asking for money. I was asking for stuff. And it was so like direct, like, you know, I was literally like posting pictures of the stuff that was coming in um, and then, and then like a box that I was about to take to the drop-in centre and yeah it just it so many started coming in I just thought god this is something that people really care about like really really care about um and so I one day was I don't know why I I don't even think I was on my period when I thought about it but I was like I'll call it bloody good because this is about what English people can do British people can do and I was thought look we are gonna have a bad rep we already have you know (laughs) terrible a terrible nation you know historically but I was like it's gonna get worse again like let's show that there are people in Britain who care deeply about other people um so I called it bloody good and then I was like ah it needs to say period we have to say period because no one will say period so I called it bloody good period and then I just started making these like really shitty graphics like they they said things like fuck Trump by pads like (laughs) And that was basically how it started. Um, it was so organic. Um, but I very much had an idea of, like, I started thinking about it really carefully quite early on and was like, what do I want this to be? Like, what message do I want this to be? I don't want to become a logistics company. I want to really just make changes. Like, how do we talk about this? How do we talk about female asylum seekers? Um, and that's really how it happened. And now, so it's been just over two years we're a charitable project still. We're not a charity. Um, but I've now, I've, I've quit my three jobs and I've re- worked for bloody good full time now. And are you, and are you able to now pay yourself a small salary through the work that the, that the company is doing? Yeah. So we've got funding. We've been able to get funding from a couple of philanthropists awesome. who are passionate about this. Um, because I mean, I was running it and I would have carried on running it. I would have, you know, but at some point, I just thought I can't physically do all of this. And it was growing and really growing and there was demand for it. And I was just becoming exhausted. I had loads of great people around me who were helping. But then I also thought, do you know what? We expect women to work for free all the fucking time. And I was like, OK, I'm not going to use people's donations to pay me. But there must be money out there that means that I can do more of this. And I felt really, really passionate about that. I'm not paid a big salary at all. But you have to be able to live at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And And there's no shame in that either. Like, I think that's something else is that just because you do a very philanthropic, very worthwhile job doesn't mean that you don't have to live yourself, you know. And, you know, I think being honest about that is, is important. 
Yeah, I mean, it's completely nuts. Why do we expect people who do good stuff to do it for free, but people who work for the banks, you know, don't? And like, it, it doesn't actually make sense. Like, it really, really doesn't. Um, but yeah, so I, so I got myself a board of trustees. Um, and, you know, that was through like different people that I'd met. And I mean, up until like, not up until, but throughout this whole time, from when the time that I was had started to look at the master's program, I was talking to loads and loads of people, especially women who were doing interesting stuff and was just emailing people that I thought were interesting and saying, can we go for a coffee? Can I pick your brains? And I know people say that I hate there's a lot you get a lot now people saying they don't like it when people say can I pick your brains but actually that's all I wanted to do I just wanted to see what is it that other women are doing what is it that people who are doing good being creative and have successful careers are doing and so like it was brilliant like there were a few women who were just absolutely instrumental in that and really um put me in contact with other people really just I mean that I think was key in in sort of creating bloody good at this point because by that time I knew how to make connections I had really great connections of people who were really interested in stuff and actually building your network because it takes time to build something you know like you don't go from naught to 100 miles an hour do you and no and you shouldn't either but but taking time to get to know people and actually you have to be a little bit bold in saying I do need to talk to somebody and I, and you know, I want to meet people and I want to get out there, but you do need somebody to sort of introduce you because otherwise it's like walking into a room and sort of standing there going, dum de dum de dum Oh yeah. I mean, I hate networking events. I'll never get, I can't bear it. I, ca- I can't, I just can't, I'm far too socially awkward to do that. But like face to face, I'll, I love. And um, actually one a woman, woman that I was nannying for, Hannah Swirling, who is, she used to write for Elle. Oh, amazing. She was, um, commissioning editor at L was really well connected and incredibly generous with it and so would just you know when I was at her house looking after her girls she would literally be like okay who am I going to put you in touch with that's amazing and, and send emails out say it because I mean that that was the thing that was most valuable just having her um write to people and be like look I know this young woman can she talk to you and mm-hmm. everybody's so receptive so so receptive and so helpful. I spoke to some really great women, Alex Holder and L.A. Renane, who are both in like the creative industries as well, and were both super generous just with like contacts and time. Um, and I think that is that was the thing that is the key. Bloody Good Period now operates out of drop-in centres across London, working with asylum seekers from a range of countries. I asked Gabby about the demographic of women using the service, how many women we're talking about, and how this has changed since she established BGP two years ago. So what we do and what we did from the beginning is that we don't set up anything ourselves. We don't set up drop-ins. We only go to places that people are already accessing. They're, They're excluded from society you know, they can't work. So they don't have any sort of network that's to do with their work. Like their networks are social, family, you know, church, the mosque. Um, and so you have to, you have to, you have to go to things that have already been created. It wouldn't, you know, you know, I had these wild ideas at the beginning that will set up these women's groups, like, but actually like the amount of effort that it would take to, to encourage people to come to something that didn't already exist and they didn't trust, it would be pointless. 
So we work with, we partner with now 25 drop-in centres that already are functioning. They've got amazing volunteers and employees who, who know the women and the people that they work with really, really well. And we basically supply them. And that's how it works. So the, the women, and I mean, to be honest, we work with women and people who menstruate as well. So people who are non-binary and trans. Um, and then also we do toiletries as well so that men do get something too. Um, and children's stuff as well. But um, they're from all over the world. A really big proportion, I think, are from um, uh, from Syria, Pakistan, uh, sorry, Afghanistan, um Georgia uh and then there's lots of different uh, West African countries as well so it's a real real mix and some people speak you know English because that's their first language and some people don't speak any English at all so that is we we really encourage like, all of the drop-ins that we work with to put the stuff on the table um <laughs> so that people can just help themselves and we're really generous with how much we expect people to take um you know we really we trust people that they'll take what they need um so yeah so it's 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 really diverse we work probably we probably give to about at this point if it's about 1500 people a month okay yeah so it's quite a lot and we've got just i've got the most unbelievable team of volunteers who just are at the storage twice a week packing sorting logging making sure everything's ready to go out to all of the different drop-ins um and I just that I mean the whole thing wouldn't run without them they're incredible and the logistics of that is in itself is quite a big operation I would imagine you know getting a van around London twice a week to do deliveries even you know like practical things like that take quite a lot of time and effort yeah that's that was I can't take credit for that so we had this um wonderful volunteer called Anna Roguski who works for Amnesty now um and she basically set up the entire logistics process of Andy Good I mean I was doing that I I still volunteer at one of the drop-ins once a month this one I started at and so I'll sort of take care of that but like she organized like drivers like volunteer handbooks um you know routes of where people go um how people become volunteers I mean she created this entire process um that basically means that it now runs really smoothly entirely on volunteers mm, that's amazing I mean what a gift for someone to give you of, of that you know oh I mean yeah the, the the generosity that people have is incredible like really really unbelievable and what are the challenges that you faced along the way with this Gabs and have you learned from any mistakes that you've made or well I mean the, the biggest challenge I think has been like this didn't really exist before um and a lot of when I started having the idea that I was like I think we could create an organization about periods people were like don't be ridiculous <laughs> if it, I mean I just vividly remember a really good friend of mine um, a, a male saying to me if it if it needed to be created wouldn't it have already been created nobody ever invented anything by saying that I know and so <laughs> I always I do like to remind him of that quite a lot um but yeah, there's just a lot of people who were like, I just don't understand why you do this. But then equally, there were so many people who were like, oh, no, I think this is a good idea. And I really, really learned to trust my gut. Like, I, beyond anything else, is that is what I have learned. Like, when you're challenged with something, like, sure, get advice, find out from different people. But um, 
but really just trust you you know best if it's your own thing um but also um I really like the big challenge is that it moves so fast and people want it to be something else and people want to change it into you know people have often said to me why aren't you campaigning about the tampon tax and it's like well because I can't do everything you know or why are you not dealing with uh products for school girls well because firstly someone else is doing that and secondly again I I can't I want to do one thing and I want to do it really well and so just saying no a lot and being really slow and considerate in what something it could this I think by this point we could have been worldwide because of the um attention that we've had but we could easily collapse in a day because there isn't the infrastructure to hold it up um, and so I've had to be really, really slow and considered about it. I mean, we're still, we're really only in London. Um, and I think it's really important because not just, it's not for, about me, the reason that I don't want these things to collapse is because the people that we're working with, it's, you have to build trust. They're incredibly vulnerable as what well, you know. Incredibly vulnerable people, exactly. And if you one week bring a load of pads over and then you don't come again, like they just, the trust firstly they just lose it with bloody period but all the people that are handing them out in the first place who you know don't work for bgp and are part of a a drop-in center and they're doing it out of the kindness of their hearts they they lose the trust in them as well and it's really unfair i think to create something that isn't sustainable that doesn't actually help women month to month rather than just one month at a time and I've heard you speak before, for example, about some of the hair products that you bought for women that were just quite inappropriate to begin with. These women, they've obviously taught you things along the way. Can you just talk a little bit about that, Gabs, as well? Yeah, so I was buying two-in-one shampoos just because that was like the cheapest thing to buy. And then I suddenly realised, and also just much cheaper pads like because I could get more, and then people started, you know, once the women started getting more comfortable with me at the drop-in that I was working at, they were like, you know, these are a bit shit. Or like one of them was like, oh, we can't actually use this on our hair. And I just like, honestly, that was, I, I've i said like before, like I think it was on the About Race podcast, I was just like, you're an idiot. How did I not think? It's pure privilege at work. It's just absolute white privilege that I hadn't thought that other women with different hair can't use the things that I do. And so that was huge. And I really, that was when I really started, that was quite early on. And I started asking the women basically whenever I could. It's a really fast process. And also I don't actually meet most of the women we work with. I just meet the ones that are dropping. But I basically asked them, is this okay for you? Is this what you want? Does this work for you? And, you know, that that is the only way that I can learn. I'm constantly questioning everything I do from the very concept of why bloody good exists to, um, you know, what am I buying the right sandwich towels? Um, I think that's really important. It's exhausting, but it's important. And it also just helps you to get better because the only way that you're, that you get better in life is to, to keep constantly re-examining what you're doing and why you're doing it, isn't it? Exactly. And also, you know, these women, they know best about their own bodies. And that is the thing that I have to remind myself and remind other people constantly, like just because somebody thinks that menstrual cups are better, like these women haven't asked me for menstrual cups. These women ask me for the products they ask me for. And that's what we give them. You know, if we're not there to listen to them, then why are we there at all? And just quickly to finish with what is next? Like what's your ambition for bloody good period, Gabby? And what are you hoping for in the next 
12 months and five years? So five years, we will not exist. Um, and we certainly won't exist in the same capacity that we do now. Um, because in the next 12 months, we're going to be campaigning. The period policy in the UK needs to be completely different. There needs to be a complete reconsideration of female health. And, you know, the, the answer it doesn't lie in free products for everyone, even though that's like a feels like a quick win for a lot of places. The answer lies in like a complete overhaul of education, um, like an inclusion of boys and men in the conversations and a real sort of um, reliant uh, responsibility of politicians and um, councillors to make this something that they care about, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it needs to come from government. I think local authorities will have a lot to do with it. But I think we need to be really campaigning government to just these things need to change. I mean, it's not just about that. Like, let's let everybody talk about periods. What we have discovered is when you don't talk about periods, children miss school because they're on their period and they don't have products or they don't have the education to access the products. And there are asylum seekers and women and homeless women and trans people who are living in jeopardy who aren't accessing products or education either. And it's, it's you know, it's dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, and we need that to change. And so it's not just going to be changed by us handing out products. We've really got to start using our voice and our platform to, to, to demand change. Bloody Good Period is already building political clout, lobbying in Westminster and beyond for change in the sector. If you'd like to donate or volunteer, then their website is bloodygoodperiod.com, all one word, and links to their social media are on the show page of our website at smashingtheceiling.com. I've also put a link to Gabby's master's degree on, at Central St. Martin's, mainly because I thought it sounded really interesting and wanted to know more, so I thought you might too. That's it for today, though. As ever, if you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, then do drop me a line. I love to hear from you. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favourite podcast site as it helps others to find us. Five stars on iTunes, preferably. But more importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next time. <laughs>